Welcome to part two of Seychelles and the Legacy of Slavery, a podcast in eight parts. The Seychelles, an archipelago of 115 islands in the Western Indian Ocean, just off the East African coastline, is well known as a luxury tourist destination, the place for romantic beach weddings and honeymoons. But despite its year-round tropical weather, white sands and turquoise waters, Seychelles has a darker history associated with slavery since the islands were first settled over 250 years ago. In today's episode, we will examine how the islands would be used as a strategically important base for the storage and trafficking of African people, even well after the official abolition of the slave trade. To put it in a historical context, between about 1640 and 1750, a great number of forts and trading posts were established on the shores of West Africa, their ownership constantly changing as the slave-trading nations fought with each other in attempts to gain supremacy in the trade. By the 18th century, England held dominance. However, the slave trade did not only operate from the west coast of Africa. Slaves were also transported from the eastern coast, sometimes down to southern African colonies or further west across the Atlantic, but also East African slaves went to Arab countries in the Middle East and also to European colonies in the east, usually to supply labour for the Dutch and Portuguese spice trade. Even after the British officially prohibited the slave trade in 1807, the system still continued undercover, not only to bring slaves to French planters who still supported the system of slavery on the islands of Seychelles, Mauritius and Réunion, but also to service other longer routes where the losses of slaves due to disease, malnutrition and lack of fresh water could be reduced. The Seychelles Islands seem to have been ideal as a stopping point for some of these routes within the Mascarenes, isolated islands where no prying eyes could witness the illicit goings-on of slave traders and other questionable activities meant that the true extent of this practice was never recorded. Researchers estimate that just under 400,000 slaves were exported to the Mascarene Islands from 1670 until 1848. In all, European traders exported somewhere between 600 to 700,000 slaves within the Indian Ocean between 1500 and 1850, and almost the same numbers were exported from the Indian Ocean to the Americas. In the 19th century alone, some 200,000 slaves were sent to toil on European plantations in the Western Indies. By comparison to the estimated 12 million slaves exported from West Africa across the Atlantic to the Americas, the slave trade in the Indian Ocean was fairly limited, and thus it received little attention from scholars until quite recently. A paper published by Peter A. Nichols in 2018 called The Door to the Coast of Africa, the Seychelles in the Mascarene Slave Trade 1770-1830 reads, Since growing numbers of slaving voyagers between East Africa and Mauritius and Réunion made use of the Seychelles in subsequent decades, this dissertation next turns its attention to discussing the socio-economic life of early Seychellois and, specifically, the various services which they provided to slavers. 
It is here demonstrated that the Seychelles were used as a provisioning station and most important of all, as a sanatorium for passing slaves. Seychelles could perform this latter function and thus impact on slave mortality rates during sea crossings thanks to the presence of small islands which were employed as quarantine stations. The availability of clean water and the abundance of wild food sources, especially tortoise and turtle meat. The intermediary role of the Seychelles is shown to have increased in the aftermath of the British takeover and the subsequent criminalization of the slave trade in 1810. The Seychelles became the centre of a wide-ranging smuggling network that drew on the outer islands of the archipelago to move East African and Malagasy slaves, predominantly to Réunion. The inner islands, for their part, were more central to the large-scale abuse of the so-called transfer system, which resulted in thousands of newly purchased slaves being imported into Mauritius following a period of acclimatization in the Seychelles. The overarching argument is that the Seychelles were much more significant to the slave trade of the Mascarenes than has previously been assumed, and that were it not for the Seychelles, such trade might not have expanded as rapidly as it did in both geographical and demographic terms. Slave mortality rates were estimated to be as high as 29.6% in the late 18th century, and the Déclaration d'arrivée made by the ship's captains on arrival in Mauritius revealed just how dispassionately the great number of casualties were viewed. For instance, one captain matter-of-factly mentioned that 94 out of the some 200 slaves he had bought in Zanzibar and Kilwa died during his return to Mauritius in 1791. A more vivid portrayal of the horrors of disease that haunted slave ships in these waters is provided by the 1787 journal of Captain Bourgeois, a well-experienced slave trader who wrote some short essays on managing slave disease. A form of rapidly infectious dysentery, which he calls le charingose, was responsible for killing, according to his estimates, about a third of East African slaves on journeys to Réunion and Mauritius in the 1770s and 80s. He considered himself fortunate for having lost only a quarter of his slaves on his last three voyages. Bruchevin noted that Le Charingos was a disease from which only the most robust individuals could recover. He described how he had cut open several bodies in an attempt to understand the disease and saw gangrenous intestines peppered with ulcers and inflammations. Many believed that death was a certainty once Le Charingos had reached a certain point, but Bruchevin believed differently, having seen several members of his crew survive, despite being severely attacked by the disease. He and his medical staff subjected the slaves aboard his ships to a horrific ordeal of trial and error experiments to keep them alive, such as restricted diets, repeated enemas, and cocktails of various potions. Bruchevin writes that out of a group of 80 slaves that underwent treatment in 1787, less than 10 survived, the rest were thrown into the sea. Some of the slaves were so fearful of the medicines that they had to be force-fed. 
Those who had undergone certain treatments, such as enemas, were ostracized by other slaves who refused to eat from the same bowls. When questioned, slaves would unanimously deny their illness and the excruciating pain that went with it for fear of being subjected to the treatments. Lesharingos was just one of many diseases from which slaves suffered during their sea crossings. There were many others, including smallpox and scurvy, so a month-long stop in the Seychelles would often be necessary for the slaves to recuperate and for the ships to be repaired and provisioned with fresh water and food from the islands. In the book, The Seychelles Islands and Its First Landowners, local historian Julien Durup mentions several islands that were used as transshipment depots for the trans-Indian Ocean slave routes, including Il Long, or Long Island, which was used by the Portuguese, and Surf Island, which was used by the French and Americans as a depot for slaves in transit. The book also mentions that La Digue was later preferred by the Americans as their slave depot. Unfortunately, numbers were not recorded since the human cargo was not intended to stay in the Seychelles. Newly arrived slaves at the depots would be disinfected with vinegar or coconut oil and it was reported that the French medical officer based on Surf Island would use the slaves in transit as guinea pigs to test drugs and inoculations on. Denise Johnstone, in her book titled Réveil Seychellois, Life in Seychelles, notes that despite the ban on slave trading, there was a great reluctance to give up the practice in Seychelles, which benefited economically from it. The British governor at the time, Edward Madge, complained bitterly of the nature and position of Seychelles that made it easy for slave traders to land slaves without the knowledge of the government. Seychellois slave ships sailed to Zanzibar, Madagascar and the Mozambique coast to engage in the abhorrent practice, the captured slaves suffering severely by being crowded into such small vessels, destitute of accommodations for their unhappy cargoes. Many of these slaves were sent on to Mauritius, where Johnston says they would fetch double the price. Some were illegally absorbed into local cotton plantations, which were booming at the time. Allegations were also recorded that some of the more remote island groups in the archipelago, hundreds of miles from the main island of Mahé, such as the Amaranth and Providence Island, were used as depots to smuggle slaves from Zanzibar and Mozambique. One informant said slaves would be stationed there in order for them to be taught the bare minimum of local language and customs for them to be passed off as Creole islanders and thus integrated illegally into the island's swelling slave population. The ships would go out to the islands officially to collect coconuts or capture sea turtles and bring the slaves back to Mahé with the rest of their cargo. If this is the case, there were certainly prestigious local Seychellois landowners who profited greatly from this murky business. Johnston mentions one in particular, a woman by the name of Anne-Marie Françoise Langlois, who was the matriarch of one of the wealthiest families in Seychelles. The widow of Jean-Pierre Langlois, she and her sons were major cotton growers and thus one of the main slave owners in the colony at the time. Her sons owned several large ships, ostensibly used for the sale of cotton in Mauritius or the poaching of turtles in the Amaranth. Another suspect was the well-known Jean-Marie Lebeuse, 
born in 1760 in Campalais, France, and arrived in 1772, where he married Marie-Jeanne Fidel, the daughter of early pioneer Pierre Angard and his Malagasy slave Annette. Jean-Marie owned many large plots of land, including Beauvalon, Anseboileau, Barbaron, Belazar, and Grand Osmaé. In an inquiry into the illegal slave trade held in 1827 in Mauritius, his slave overseer, Anthony Madge, reported occasions when he saw slaves that had clearly not been raised on the islands. They were men, women and children, and the men had irons on, Madge testified. I asked some of the old blacks who were there in charge of them who they belonged to. They told me that the blacks were landed to be maintained until they could be sold. On another occasion, he said he witnessed about a hundred slaves being brought ashore at Anselamouche on a ship owned by Lebeuse's son and captained by his son-in-law. The British authorities long suspected these families of engaging in the illegal slave trading, but the charges were never conclusively proven, meaning the Grand Blanc families in Seychelles would continue to financially profit and perpetuate their wealth from the system of human trafficking long after the slave trade was made illegal. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, please feel free to use the link in the description to send a message. And if you find this podcast interesting, don't forget to rate it, share it and follow so you don't miss future episodes. Our next episode takes a look at some of the stories of the Seishawa slaves so we can look past the historical statistics and see them as real human beings who suffered immense tragedies but in some cases, they also had their triumphs.